this is Auteur Detour, wherein three film lovers travel through the filmographies of cinema's most important directors in hopes of finding a greater understanding on the other side. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Auteur Detour, where we explore the oeuvres of our favorite filmmakers, one movie at a time. I'm Travis, and with me, as always, are Chris Balaza. Hello. And Ian Hinckley. Hello. Today. It's Ian <laughs> I said that. They don't need to be reminded of that. Today, they can... Once they hear you say something you. and then, like, uh, Winnie, and, and they'll know it's you, Ian. All right. Well, today, we'll be discussing Joel and Ethan Cohen's 2010 film, True Grit. With their fixation on violence, manhood, the American psyche, and both cinematic and literary genre, it seems inevitable that the Coen brothers would finally put their unique stamp on the Western genre. And finally, for their 15th feature film, they chose to adapt Charles Portis's classic 1968 novel, True Grit, previously adapted in 1969. The story follows a 14-year-old named Maddie Ross, whose father was murdered by a drifter named Tom Chaney. Maddie travels to Fort Smith, and in a hilarious bit of character building, she outwits and outtalks an accountant, played by Deacon Matthews, the beloved character actor known to many as Doug Heffernan's father, Joe, on King of Queens. Um, out of horses, out of money, <laughs> while attending to her father's remaining earthly affairs. As soon as these more mundane matters are resolved, she gets started on the next matter of business, avenging her father's death. She asks around for the best U.S. Marshal to hire for the job and is taken by the description of a particularly mean and, I wrote, rident? Violent. Okay. Violent. Yeah. Strident. A particularly, a particularly mean and violent man, Rooster Cogburn. She pesters him into accepting the job with the condition that she accompany him on the task. He leaves without her, teaming up instead with a Texas Ranger... Uh, named Labeef. However, Maddie follows in close pursuit and swims across a river on her horse to catch up. Uh, the two men put up a fight, but Rooster eventually allows Maddie to join the posse. After some time spent following Chaney, who's joined a gang of dangerous outlaws led by Lucky Ned Pepper, and after many fights between the three um, Avengers, they stumble upon Tom almost accidentally, and Maddie eventually gets her revenge at considerable cost to herself. Um, it's a pretty straightforward story, and I guess I want to ask you guys what you thought of the movie, but also I want to ask the question, is this a Coen Brothers movie? That's my question to <laughs> you. Yes, yes. I have the same thought. So and funny, we can yeah. totally get into it. But let's start with what we thought about it. Um, I think... I couldn't really get your vibe, Travis, but I'll just say that I, like, whether you liked it or not, but I do think it's a really good Western. Like, I do think that, like, it's, you know, it's, like I said in the last episode, like, they're in this zone now since No Country for Old Men where, like, they're just such good filmmakers that, like, it doesn't even, I mean, I know we're going to hit Hail Caesar soon and that's maybe not great, but the movies that have come so far after No Country for Old Men are, like, all just like very sure-footed and easy to watch and really like you know fun to watch in a lot of ways and like this one I just really like I don't think I love it although I can't say for sure that I love any western 
Um, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know. We can get into more about Westerns. That's like what I really want to talk about. But I do think that like, I would never say that I don't like this movie. It is just doesn't feel like a Coen Brothers movie to me. Yeah, it's funny you say that, uh, both of you guys, because I left this movie, I watched it in the theater when it came out, and I left it going, oh, like, I really thought, you go into a Coen Brothers movie, especially one that's like a remake, like, oh, okay, they're going to put their signature, like, crazy twist or something violent out of the blue is going to happen or something like, you know, wacky or whatever is going to be going down, but they're going to do it really well, I did nothing really truly different except maybe the very very ending and a few minor minor details compared to the original uh actually go down so i'm like did i just watch a cohen movie it looked like a cohen movie there was some recognizable cohen faces in it but it didn't feel like a cohen brothers movie to me but with that said it's still a good movie it's still an enjoyable western yeah. i don't love westerns for the you know as a genre it's not among my favorite but i find them just really watchable it's just easy to just put on a western you know and just, you know, do mm-hmm. it. But it, they don't cause me really like to think much deeper, like analyze stuff very much. I just kind of put it on and then go with it. And this movie was kind of no exception in that regard. Before you say anything, Travis, I do want to say, sorry, I just caught myself in a lie. There are a couple of Westerns I can point to that I absolutely love, but they're kind of outliers in that they generally are like bucking the kind of Western that this movie is. So anyway, keep going. Hmm. Um... I just I remember seeing this in theaters and not knowing what to expect. I hadn't seen the original film at the time. I hadn't I hadn't read I still haven't read the book. Um, I just went into it knowing that it was a Coen Brothers movie and that was basically it. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of loved it. Um, I thought it was fantastic. I thought the by the time the ending. I mean, the last, like, 20 minutes or so, I mean, I was, like, on the edge of my seat. I was, like, totally caught up in yeah, it, yeah. caught up in the story. I, I mean, it's it's yeah. it's incredibly, like, well-made. I think they are, yeah, like you said, like, using their, you know, considerable talents that they've developed over, like, again, this is their 15th movie. They can mm-hmm. just kind of, like, I mean, the same kind of, like, you know... Um, techniques that they were using even in their first movie to kind of build suspense and kind of like, you know, just kind of play the audience like a violin. Um, They're doing all that here, but just like uh, with more subtlety, more kind of um, less sort of uh, showiness um, and kind of like in, in service to a more straightforward story. Like I was saying, there's no irony. There's no like uh, nothing that like there's some, well, I'll just, I'll just say that like, I remember in 2010, this year, The Fighter came out as well. And that, like, that's another director who um, is someone that I don't love, but, like, is an interesting filmmaker. But that Mm -hmm. movie seemed so, like, kind of straightforward and, like, just an easy way for him to kind of, like, use his kind of, like, filmmaking gifts to just tell, like, a a more straightforward story in a way that worked really well for me. And I thought, I kind of lumped these two movies together as just, like, Mm -hmm. you know, a couple of our, like, most talented filmmakers just doing, like, almost like basic Hollywood movies, but really well. And it, and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And I think there was a couple other ones that came out that same year that were similar, like to that. Like um, I was even looking at the uh, best picture nominees from that year. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, the 1969 true grit was like a f- even way more than this one was like a straightforward Western, like in like the, you know, it's whole thing was like 
bringing back the glory of John Wayne in a world where like the world had turned against John Wayne Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. and it like beat Midnight Cowboy, which, right. You know, not like he beat the two actors from Midnight Cowboy who like potentially split the vote, but also just like, it's Hollywood being like, no, we want John Wayne. We don't want these friggin' queers. You know what I mean? Like in a lot of ways. And in the same way, this movie went up against, I mean, I don't think this movie would have won anyway, although it did get nominated, but it got beat by the King's Speech, which is like such oh. a such oh. an Oscar baity kind of movie. You know what I mean? Literally in like a worst, similar kind of way. One of the worst but it's movies like that Hollywood has produced in the last 20 years. Where it's like, the King's Speech, the, yeah. I hate the King's Speech so much. Oh, anyway, we can talk about that. Understandable. Time, but, oh my god! <laughs> but like, but that's what I was saying is that like, it's funny that like the original True Grit was like Hollywood being like, no, we want Hollywood, and then this True Grit, which is still like very Hollywood movie, but like, along with The Fighter, uh, Inception, Social Network, Black Swan, you know, these kids are all right. Like these movies that whether or not you love them or hate them, like they're big swings from big directors. A lot of them. And, like, they got beat by, you know, just fucking Mr. Oscar. You know what I mean? Like, the King's Speech. Some people will say that Cats is Tom Hooper's worst movie. But I will argue. (laughs) (laughs) I will make a different case. Yeah. Uh, Well, anyway. It's funny, though, because I recently... Uh, well, speaking of, you know, guys, like you mentioned Black Swan, I'd, the only Aronofsky film I hadn't seen was The Wrestler. And I just watched that not too long ago. And like True Grit, I was like did I just watch a movie by X director? Is this really that? Cause it's the only movie yeah. by Aronofsky that I can think of that's played without any, like re- the nature of reality is never at any point in question. Yeah. It's just like this straight guy just follows this man, you know? Right. And, uh, and like that, like I say, I have the same kind of feeling with true grit. I'm like, wait, is this, this director doing something different? And at first I was kind of like, eh, I was expecting something else. But at the same time, you have to appreciate, you know what? I've already mastered this particular voice and this style. You know, let's go. Uh, let's, let's like you said, kind of play their, uh, play them like a fiddle to a degree. You know, like let's, let's play it straight. Let's see how we do with this particular genre and just take well, it on as a straight up genre film. There's not like a blend. It's like a straight Western and that's it. it. Is. It's a straight up genre. And I think that like, What's interesting about it, though, is that it's not just them, like, stripping the Cohenness out of it. It's also, like, flying in the face in terms of, like, the story that it's telling and the moral of the movie and that kind of thing. Like, of almost everything that the Cohen brothers have, like, tried to I don't know if say. I agree with that. I don't know if I agree with that. I'd like to talk about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Keep, what do you mean by that, Ian? What I mean is that, like, even on a... Um, well, I mean two things by it, but I'll I'll start with the one that maybe we can have more fun arguing with because uh, I think that like the Western as a genre, like when you're talking about this kind of Western where it's like, you know, not like a, um, I don't know, not like a... Uh, so there's the way they divide Westerns usually in like film Western. school is like Westerns and then there's like the revisionist Westerns of right, like the exactly. 60s. Yeah. Um, and the seventies and then on into the future. I reject that. I don't buy that. Every Western I've ever seen has like subversive elements in it, or it's asking big questions or like it's asking that they're asking the same questions. They might come to different conclusions, but I don't fully agree with like there's straight Westerns and there's revisionist Westerns. Well, this is what I was kind of curious about because (laughs) I feel like the Coen brothers, when I say that like goes against what they're saying, I feel like the reason why they make, 
crime movies and suspense movies and horror sort of adjacent adjacent movies is because most of the time when I say horror adjacent, I just mean like in terms of like, you're kind of always on the edge of your seat, like wondering what's going to happen. And extreme violence, extreme blood and violence. violence. Whereas like, you know, this kind of movie has a lot of violence and extreme stuff like that, but you're not really like wondering what's going to happen next in the same kind of way. And the difference to me in like a, a suspense movie is that like, I feel like the um, emotion that, let me see how I can say this. Guys like me and probably you guys and most of the people that I know that have like any amount of anxiety tend to um, gravitate towards suspenseful movies, I think, because it gives them a chance to like categorize like a, you know, beginning, middle and end of how something's going to play out and sort of like put a name to a fear. And Don't analyze me. Don't analyze me. <laughs> Get out of my no. head. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, I mean, I'm, I think that that's sort of like a thing that's been uh, studied before, too. I'm not making that up in my mind, um, although I don't think I've ever read anything about it. But I feel like that's in the ether that like, you know, more sort of, you know, if you're a more anxiety ridden person, then you like to watch things where like in anxiety gets solved in a lot of ways maybe that's like the king's speech like he's dealing with all that anxiety from having to do that important speech he's got a stutter but he masters it but then like when it comes to westerns um i think that like who's into like i love some westerns but i think that like the main kind of um feeling that that a western is supposed to sort of put you in is like dealing with um the vastness of your landscape, whether it's like our world or, you know, it's like a metaphor for our world that we're living in uh, when you see like the giant plane, you know, and then like how you have to like stand out in this sort of vast, vast landscape. Like a lot of times it's about like a hero's journey in this vast landscape where like one person has true grit and can like, you know, like be a hero in a world where you're like surrounded by wasteland, you know what I mean? Or not wasteland, but like just openness. You know? There's an existentialism to a lot of Western movies that I think kind of binds this to their, like a lot of other Coen brothers movies. I mean, I think it's very like clear in this movie in particular, but like it is sort of like making meaning out of, in a world where like there is no law, you know what I mean? Right. That, I that, 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 that component is kind of like removed from it or like, you know, mo- largely removed from it. I thought that one of the things that made this, like, interesting to me as a Coen Brothers movie is that, like, you know, it's beautiful because Roger Deakins is so, you know, amazing as a cinematographer. But, like, the landscapes are, like, decidedly ugly compared to the landscapes of the 1969 version. You know, like, the big, like, scope of it. When you're watching the John Wayne one, you know that's almost the only appeal of that John Wayne one to me. Well, no, it's not. I like some parts of that movie, but like that is the big appeal. It's no, that like is the best part of the movie. Yeah. That like movie is shot with like, you know, they're going through these like rivers and deserts and it's fucking beautiful. Look at this yeah. one. When they're in the fucking vast open spaces, 
it's fucking ugly, dark desert where you like do not feel welcome. You know what I mean? Like it's, and I thought that that was an interesting difference. It's a good point. There's also a lot of scenes that are different from the first in that they're shot at nighttime where you barely see any of this Mm -hmm. beautiful vista too. Like, you know, where they smoke out the house and stuff. And uh, uh, the end of course is shot at night as opposed to the beginning or the the original one where it's all in broad daylight where you can actually Mm -hmm. see like the beautiful river he's, you know, hunting them out in and all of this other stuff. So that's a good point. I hate the original one. I think the performances. I like John Wayne, but I think the performance of John Wayne, the performance of like, you like his like politics, right? Yeah, no, I like him just like uh, yeah. Um, he's a hero to most, including me. Uh, anyway, I yeah. Sorry. Don't love his performance in the movie. I don't. No. I mean, I hate the girl, uh, the like twenty-something-year-old actress who yeah, plays. Yeah. The little girl, yeah. like, just fawning over him the whole <laughs> Please, time. little girl. One day, little girl, the sadness will leave your face. It's, like, purposely obnoxious. Like, it's funny because, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a distance when it comes to, like, Coen Brothers protagonists, you know? There's, like, they have, like, a distance from the audience where you're not just, like, kind of putting yourself in those characters all the time. This movie maybe comes a little bit closer than most, but um, in that original movie, the actress plays it like she's on stage. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. she's like mm-hmm. just completely, um, well, and I don't know K- how to Campbell say it. Like just, just obnoxious. Just like a bad actor. Too. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. That just kind of I mean, washes over me. But like, yeah, sh- the girl is particularly obnoxious and like old Hollywood movies I find tend to like, uh, minimize like child actors like they don't mm-hmm. put any stock in them like I'm thinking mm-hmm. of like you know the voice of um, like what's her name Scout in in the book of To Kill a Mockingbird yeah. versus like mm-hmm. the little girl who plays her in, in the movie and, and the way they don't even care whether or not she's really reading that you know strongly on the screen um, this movie took like the, the opposite kind of um, tack and allowed the actress playing Maddie to really like own the role, own the movie. And, uh, I think it's she's so much stronger than, I mean, you think what she is. I think, uh, Haley Stanfield was incredible in this movie. Yeah. I think she's like such a, like, I mean, you know, now she's like a pop singer. I haven't followed her career at all, but, uh, you're missing out. She <laughs> probably am. But, um, yeah, well, I mean, what a, just what a breakthrough performance. Like it was so good. And, and they, like, yeah, I mean, uh, it's notable. I think they did it right in that, you know, comparing the two different roles, they especially made Haley Steinfeld's character way less of a whiny, like, I can't count how many times in the original the girl's like, my family's got money or we own this or that. You know, she invokes the law mm-hmm. a lot in the re- most recent one, but that's to generate a response, right? Like, that's the one thing that can get people to to react. Like, oh, don't sue me or, oh, no, don't get the lawyers involved. But the other one's like, I'm, a, I'm rich. Me, 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 me. Get me, 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 me. It's like, Dude, just shut the fuck up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Haley Steinfeld, the least you can sort of, you empathize with her character to the degree that she really wants to get this done and she's just out there to make it happen, you know? She's awesome, yeah. and, but she she's still annoying, but like in a way that is like real and like to her character. When she says she's going to, to break the tension, when she says like, let's do the story of the midnight caller. One of you can play the caller. I'll do all the other voices. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. is literally what I would do on camping trips with my family. I would like <laughs> recite episodes of uh, like Rocky and Bullwinkle that I had on VHS <laughs> that I had like memorized. Uh, so I was like very amused That's with that. That's really funny. Um, <laughs> no. And yeah, I mean her, I did appreciate that they 
kept her annoying and also that they uh they finished out her storyline without making her likable you know what i mean like her yeah. you know um tragic end like the the last you know five minutes of the movie is like cuts to 25 years later and she's what have you i'm failing to find any other words i'm trying to find right unarmed? she's like an old uh <laughs> what is that I said unarmed. Is that the word you're looking for? <laughs> she is unarmed. No, but I mean, that aside, you would expect most movies to be like, you know, she's softened up a bit. You know what I mean? Like through mm. her experiences. Like that would be what a lot of movies would do. And like, I loved that in this movie. She's still a fucking hard ass that is living her life alone because she's got this like. I mean, just like she was when she was 14. But she's, she's more this, like, stern. She's more dour. Like she's definitely any kind more of like stern, spark but that's of youth. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like it, she's had a hard life. You get the idea. Absolutely. Uh, from like not having an arm and like having to rely on like her wits. She has no patience for anybody. Yeah. She, she, it's like, when it's really sad. At it's the guy very, who doesn't stand up. It's, it's a, like, it's so sad. But yeah. it's still in it's keeping with like, it is in keeping though with like the Western trope of sorts, right? The lone, uh, you know, person the lone hero sort of soldiers on and the existentialism involved because she got married then she'd basically be defined by her relationship to whoever she's married with or even though the movie probably wouldn't get into that like it's definitely within keeping with the character that she just you know soldiers on solo for the rest of her life but i think even having it be a tragedy which is what like it was always going to have to be also it's obviously based on a book but like it's uh you know even keeping it as a tragedy, they would have made it more tragedy, like sh- showing that like the world has done so wrong by her, but you get the feeling that like, yeah, the world has done so wrong by her, but also like, she's not a passive like victim of it. You know what I mean? She's also like a hard ass that will do whatever she wants to like get like her point across. I don't know. Well, this is why I think it like, does follow kind of some of the conventions of the Coen brothers, like filmography. There's a line that she says early on, I think in narration, I don't know, remember exactly what it was. Um, I have to be honest. This is the second time I've seen the movie since, and it was the first time since seeing it in theaters. And I have not like fully got my head around it. I was just like, again, really taken into the story. I didn't remember a lot of the details. And so I just, I I wrote like no notes. Well, I'll be honest too. I've seen it several times. And and that's all I, that's all I wrote. (laughs) Um, but, uh, I was just going to say like, there's a line she says about, you know, every action has like an equal reaction or something like that Mm -hmm. where it's like, um, and I think it's some biblical thing that she's referencing. You must pay for everything in this world one way and another. There is nothing free except the grace of God. But in my head, that calls to mind like that, the whole, the way that they see the world of like, you know, people do these actions and it leads to kind of unseen consequences or unintended consequences. And the whole movie, if you think about it that way, there's this killing and it sets off this events where people can't let this thing go. It kind of spirals out of control, leads to like many, many deaths. And, uh, and then even when she gets her revenge, like, you know what I mean? It's not, it doesn't put an end to anything. It blows her back into like a pit of snakes, Mm -hmm. a literal pit of snakes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, changes the course of her entire life and kind of like leads her to that kind of, you know, semi-tragic end, you know, just like tragic in the sense that like, oh damn, she's old and angry. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Which is kind of like a universal thing. You know what I mean? Um, Looking back at this like, you know, moment of greatness or whatever. I think that's where the kind of like the sadness comes from. 
Um, right. Yeah. The fact that, she, you know, she says like, I don't know. So my it's, point is like, I think they're subtly, they are like, they took on the movie because so many of their themes are like in, kind of embedded into it. But I, again, I don't think they're doing their normal I think it's like a, the approach to the material that to me struck I, it as like more straightforward, less Cohen-esque. Okay, we haven't even talked about Jeff Bridges yet. I mean, like, let me just say, like, when the movie, like, when it shows a bad guy, the, in, the, in this movie, the music goes, dun-dun-dun, and, like, the camera, no, like, looks at him like, whoa, you know, like, that <laughs> is the mode they're operating in. That is what is, like, un-Cohen Brothers-esque to me. Uh, in, in, in terms that of, like, is- the moral of the story and stuff like that, I actually think you could make a case that this falls, you know, very closely in line with a lot of the Well, okay, movies. let me just dig a little bit further into yeah. that because I do think that, like, the story of True Grit, like, yeah, there's this part where, like, it ends, you know, with her sort of recalling this terrible time in her life with, like, fondness because it was the biggest thing that she'd done. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it was, like, the biggest connection she'd had in her life with mm-hmm. uh, Rooster Cogburn. So, like... There's that part of it. But then there's the other part of it that I would argue is what the movie's actually about, which is like, you know, how, like showing a man with true grit, like a man who's like unwilling to. I mean, that's what I the think fucking that's movie's the, I called. I think that's, that's the what, first like, movie. I think the first movie is about that. I don't think the remake well, is about I'm, that. Well, that's even what I'm talking about. Because then I'm saying like, why... If that's what this movie's about, especially the 1969 movie, for sure, yes. that movie is like 100% about that. Yes. It's like showing, like, not just as like this character, Rooster Cogburn, but like this persona of John Wayne that yes. was disappeared from Hollywood. And they're just like, we need him in with true grit again. You know, it's like, sure. and they're just like, build him up as this thing. And uh, it's funny because like, I was reading like John Wayne, who I also like have a softness spot in my heart for because like I grew up, my dad is six foot three from Cherokee, Iowa, very different politically from John Wayne, but also like as a child grew up with those movies he did and like resonated with him because they're both this like corn fed middle America guys. And like John Wayne, he was his favorite. Rio Bravo was his favorite movie like for years and years and years. And I totally will always have like a soft spot of my heart because of that and how many times I saw those movies. But like by this time, by 1969, when he's making this movie and obviously he gets his fucking first Oscar for it, which is weird. But, but that's like, just, that's he's just like, typical Hollywood. That's just typical Hollywood. No, of course Hollywood. it is. It's like a giving lifetime the, achievement award like, at that Giving point. a lifetime like, achievement award like, and, then, <laughs> and then having to do it to the next generation of actors who didn't get nominated back then. Yeah, it's like, exactly. It's a, a exactly. perpetuating like, Oscar <laughs> but like, cycle. He's, you know, he's like wearing a toupee and a corset and like uh mm-hmm. or a corset and like you know he's like riding on the back of a trailer for the big final showdown like whereas like jeff bridges literally did that like he was holding two guns up with the reins in his teeth and like doing it he's the same age that john wayne was when he made this movie it's just showed me that like how little grit john wayne actually had you know <laughs> whereas like the dude is like truly the biggest badass apparently um Talking about how anyway. far out of step the Oscars are with, like, what is going on, like, in movies, uh, I remember hearing that, like, um, I think it was Street uh, Streetcar Named Desire 
every main actor in that movie got nominated for uh, the Oscar except for uh, Marlon Brando. Marlon <laughs> Brando, that's really funny. So I don't think um, it's anyway, I don't I think gonna, it's like outrageous that he got I the know, Oscar. I it's, think it's not totally it, actually. It's um, not. Yeah, typical. it's actually yeah, it's absolutely perfect. But yeah. um, but I got off track. But I was going to say that like you know if that's what that movie is about in 1969, then like why are the Coen brothers like you say they're drawn to it because they can see some themes in it. But I do think that, like, most of their themes lead back to a world where, like, you know, chaos reigns. And there isn't one, like, uh, like one that you can't really rely on people. And, like, all that kind of thing. Whereas, like, this movie is, like, the opposite of that. Where, like, she keeps getting saved by them and saving them in different ways. Like, it's like, we're all in, like, if you have grit, you can help each other. And, like, all that kind of thing. That doesn't feel Coen Brothers at all to me. I disagree, Again, I but I forget, and I and I had a proof in my head of why that was not true, but I forget. Again, I <laughs> I didn't take good notes during this movie. I was very cut up. I had grease <laughs> on my hand from the popcorn, and I was like, I couldn't hold my pencil. Um, I ate popcorn while I watched it too. It's a great popcorn. I movie. will say um, nothing. Anybody else? That's fine. Yeah, Chris, what do you got? <laughs> oh, I was just thinking about yeah, we we're just talking about Jeff Bridges and Rooster Cogburn, and I was just thinking about the differences between uh, Jeff Bridges mm-hmm. and and uh, and uh, John Wayne. And well, I think it's funny like they switch the eye on the eye patch. It's like a little yes, thing, you know. <laughs> I, that too. Minute, you I was know? like, that's got to be a joke. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So he's not quite the same, but but I like how. Uh, John Wayne is John, and he doesn't have a cat, you know, in this one, so he's a little bit less, he's, Jeff Bridges is more like, maybe like a legit guy in that position, like, he looks like he really smells bad, he like never has, you know, he's literally, doesn't have a cat, he's like a little gruffer, everything is straining into dark, you know? But one thing Uh, I also loved about him was that he is also obnoxious like he yes. rambles on and on while yeah he's drunk. yeah and that's like true. he's not like the strong silent type like he's a fucking annoying drunk just like she's an annoying so well person. i feel like, like if you're on the edge of society back then and like there's not like normalizing forces like uh you know that like television and like you know the internet to like kind of show you how to act you know it, it would be <laughs> very easy to be extremely eccentric and obnoxious back then yeah. uh like i'm thinking of the guy who just makes like animal sounds like yeah i'm like i've known people who i could see like you know like right, 50 yeah. years in the past they could have maybe That's become somebody character. like that and in the first movie they actually explain like yeah these brothers are a little mm, you know, there's little right. screw loose in the in the, in the remake. It's just that's who this guy is just, just making these random the animal thought, sounds, <laughs> which is obviously incorrect. But I fully had the thought where like that original movie has that same character just being like, and I'm like, I just thought that like the Coen brothers were just like, you know, we can do that. Yeah, that's why they made this movie. Like we can show what that guy would really be like. Yeah, it's like fully over the top. Yeah. But I do like how Jeff Bridges, he's not, doesn't look like, uh, but you know, like John Wayne and you watch the movie, there's John Wayne, you know, being Rooster right. Cogburn. I don't, I kind of almost forget that he's Jeff Bridges in that role, which is good. You yeah. know, he's not, uh, yeah. uh, he really I kind of too. creates his own kind of character with that. And I, and I respect and appreciated his, his take. He's really fun to watch. Uh, yeah, I was just kind of thinking of all the different people in my head who they might have chosen for that role. Maybe we could talk about these later, but while we're talking about, you know, he's great. Bridges. I'm, I, I think it's really funny that they left out the cat, um, because 
they used a cat prominently in their other big remake, which was the Lady Killers, and yeah. uh, which and, worked so you know, poorly. And I feel like their next movie. I feel like they're just kind of like, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I'm glad yeah. they left their out next the movie, which you haven't seen, Inside Lewin Davis, is like yeah. literally follows. True, the cat. That's right. After True. That. That. Okay. Well, anyway, they made uh, up never, for it. Nevertheless, um, I will say, yeah, I remember hearing that they. Um, you know, I think the language is what also drew, drew them to this story. Mm-hmm. I think um, mm-hmm. the language of, like, the original novel and, like, the language of the girl specifically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember them talking about when they were casting the movie, um, they auditioned, like, hundreds of girls. And no one even came close to what they were picturing. Right. And they were, like, they I guess they, they compared it to, like... Um, composers who would write like angelic kind of like vocal uh music that like couldn't be performed by human beings you mm-hmm. know but it was just like music that could only be like performed by angels literally and they were like oh shit did we do that uh with this like dialogue <laughs> and then um but when they found Haley Stanfield they were like all right it's gonna work out and uh <laughs> I remember hearing a really similar story about um when they were casting Rushmore um and they like couldn't find any kid, any American kid to uh, play the part. So they finally ended up bringing in British kids, and they found like oh, yeah, one yeah. kid who was decent. And they're like, "Okay, what if he's American, but part of the character is that he's like doing a British accent, like out of pretentiousness?" But then they found uh, Schwartzman. what's his name, Jason Schwartzman, uh, who was like so perfect. They're like, "Okay, done." Like on that day, they're just like, "Oh, yeah. we got it. We're done." But like, I still think about like that idea for the character, and it's like. Really funny. That'd be a really funny thing to add. It's kind of weird. We haven't seen a lot. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I haven't seen her in a lot much else. She's in this, speaking of A24, she's in this pretty bad A24 movie called Barely Lethal. But I think that's the only other time I've seen this this actress. I don't know. Maybe it's just me and I haven't seen her in your movies. But you'd think she'd have gotten, you know... uh, I don't know. Maybe a bit more work. But that's also, you know, maybe... I remember seeing her... Yeah, and a couple random things, but like not seeing them, but like hearing about them. You mean, but yeah, I do. You're remember. talking about Haley Stanfield. Haley, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, she um she made one of those, you know, teen with you know mm. drama, whatever you call it, like a, the world between the stars or whatever the fuck they oh, call yeah, it. Oh yeah, yeah. Those every year, mm-hmm. and then she's done like like I said, she's a pop star. I think that's where her focus. Oh, is. Oh okay, uh, okay, now. right. That makes sense. Um, Did you guys ever see uh, the Toxic Crusader? Yes. Yeah, of course. Toxic the Avenger? Blo- uh, Toxic Avenger, sorry. The yeah. Crusaders is like the cartoon version. The no, the Toxic yeah. Avenger, with, uh, and he has that blind girlfriend. <laughs> I think that performance is like so incredible. And I was always like, what happened to that actress? She tried to be a pop singer. And she has like a couple random albums that you can like buy on <laughs> okay. eBay. And I guess that's the explanation. And her career like never took off. But like, right. so disappointed she didn't keep acting. She was good. Anyway. Good for her. Um... Yeah. Well, speaking of more actors in this movie, uh, Matt Damon and Josh Brolin and Barry Pepper, uh, all like standouts to me in a lot of ways in this movie. Yeah. Like, I'm not a um, big Matt Damon fan, to be honest with you. I think that like he can give great performances sometimes, but when he's there's something about him that I find like I don't know. I've, I've referred to him as like, you know, mansplain in, uh, in human form. Like he's got this sort of smugness about him that bothers me sometimes. And when his character leans too far into that, it can bother me. But I think he's also can be a great actor. And in this one, I think him and Josh Brolin specifically 
are the most like Cohenized characters in this movie. Like as if you compare them to the um, original 1969 movie, hmm. because like, you know, it's not, I mean, obviously he's going to give a better performance than Glenn Campbell did, but also it's just like, I do like that. Like, uh, I almost wanted to like imagine a film where it was following one of them, like following Tom Chaney, um, who like nothing can go right for. Like, I like the movie that as it is as a great Western, but like if I was imagining a Coen brothers version of this movie, which I don't think that this is a Coen brothers version of this movie, like it would be following Tom Chaney almost because it's like, he's like the one who like does the initial crime Mm -hmm. and then just like things keep going worse and worse and worse. And I love that he's like, and then he's killed by a child. And then he's killed by a child, you know, like, and like he's bossed around by his boss in front of her. And he's like, all like, you know, it's like, he's such a like piece of shit in like a beautiful way that I love as a character. Like, I love that he's not some scary outlaw. Like he joins in as like the fifth wheel for their gang. You know what I he's, mean? Like, he's portrayed as a simpleton. And mm-hmm. uh, Chris, you were making a face like you didn't appreciate maybe some of the performances. Was it his in particular? Because he is, I would, I would use the word goofy. Yeah. I don't mind the performance. I mean, I think he's a great actor. Uh, and I think he's good in this movie, like at what he's doing. But you're like, oh shit, like he is goofy in this movie. Yeah, I totally. I it, it's funny because Josh Brolin typically commands like this, like he's like a man, he's the macho guy, he's like this bravado to him. You know, you see in so many different roles from Sicario to uh, Inherent Vice and all of the in between, right? And this character, like you said, he's kind of like this simple guy. I even for a minute pictured Steve Buscemi in this role, just because he's kind of like skinnier. He reminded me a little bit more of the original uh, Tom Chaney, I think. And he's kind of like simple. The only problem is he's already been kind of like the bad guy with Fargo. We don't want to like retread too much of that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do like his performance, he's certainly good. I mean, there's not one uh Josh Brolin role I've ever seen where I'm like, this guy sucks, you know, he's really pretty solid. Uh, yeah. granted, I, I've deliberately avoided Old w. Boy, the remake, speaking of remakes, but <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I thought maybe like who else would be a little better in this role? I like that he's doing something a little bit different, but for a second, I was like, Ooh, what if Steve Buscemi was Tom Chaney here, you know? Okay, when it comes yeah. to my philosophy on like acting, there is I do have like an ambivalence towards like look how ugly we made this beautiful person or look at how this person like mm-hmm. um, kind of goes against their own like body type or like personality mm-hmm. type to inhabit this role when it's so much easier just to plug in somebody who does embody that and let right. them do the acting like in theater or something that that is really like impressive to, to behold but in movies sometimes I, I, I like the sort of immediacy of somebody you just see them and you get it yeah. um, so there's like a little bit like a a veneer of acting over Josh Brolin's performance that kind of, I have a slight I I ambivalence like to, but I, I like get it. it. Yeah. But I, yeah. I think what, it, what clicked with me watching it was that, you know, he doesn't come in until an hour and 20 minutes into the movie. Like he's the, you know, villain of the movie, but he's not fucking in the movie. Right. And then, um, when he finally shows up, even this time that I watched it, I'd forgotten that he was in it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was like, oh, yeah, and, like, it's him. And, like, I was glad to see him because we just watched No Country. And, like, uh, you know, he pops up and he is. He's so goofy. And, like, it did feel, like I said to me for the first time, like, okay, this is, like, the Coen Brothers version of the True Grit character. Because, like, the original bad guy, you know, I don't remember who plays him, but he's, like, 
he's definitely he's like a bonanza villain like mm-hmm. he, he doesn't like mm-hmm. pop at all no. like he's literally like feels almost like none of the characters pop in the original one and I think that's what the mm-hmm. Coen brothers do well in this but I don't know that that's like a Coen brothers thing or it's just like a better script and better directing do you yeah. know what I mean like yeah. it just mm-hmm. it works to me like just as more they're more distinct characters so they like all so, so yeah so that also counts for Matt Damon because yeah. you know Glenn Campbell's character doesn't pop at all in yeah. that movie. He's almost right. like fucking not even in it except for to like move the story forward in the way that the book moved the story forward. Mm-hmm. And then like, uh, I did, you know, <laughs> I did really like him in this movie. I thought he was really fucking good. He's great. I He's great. I really, movie, yeah. I really enjoyed uh Barry Pepper as lucky Barry Pepper in this mm-hmm. movie. Uh, like yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I was surprised <laughs> to see him. I, I, you know, uh, I hadn't seen him since, him and Matt Damon were, you know, reunited, I guess, and the yeah, Saving, Saving Private Ryan, Ryan, whatever. But yeah, I, uh, I thought he was one. I also, for a second, was like, what if we only cast people whose last names match the characters they're playing? <laughs> Shia LaBeef is LaBeef. Yeah. You know? yeah. James and Coburn yeah. is Rooster Conburn. Tom Chaney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Lon Chaney is. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, Lon Chaney. <laughs> the third. No. There is like a Lon just Chaney, kidding. the third, so. That, that might actually be possible, it, yeah. but um, oh man! But no, no I, I did like Ned Pepper. Barry Pepper was pretty solid. Have you guys season. seen the Twenty Fifth Hour? Yeah, uh, yes, he, long time ago. He, it's like it's you know all the greatest actors of that generation, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, Edward Norton, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. who uh, is the young woman in that from the piano? Oh, uh, it's Anna uh, Paquin. Anna Paquin. Right? Yeah. Just like you know, heavy hitters, and then Barry Pepper, uh, like absolutely steals like every scene he's in. He's really yeah. good. Yeah, he's great. always great. I think, I mean, listen, we don't have to get into it. I was going to say, I think that he's hardcore Scientology guy. Um, and that might be why he doesn't work with a lot of directors. Cause I think that's sort of, I don't know. Mm. Okay. I think he's difficult to work with also. Um, that's just what I've heard, but he's a great actor. I mean, he's always good. He Next. was also in the Scientology movie with John yep. Travolta. I was going to say like he's the good. He's the hero. Uh, yeah. I was going to say he's pretty much only uh, in movies where he gets to fire guns, basically, like Saving Private Ryan and well, you know what? He's really Flags of Our Fathers. Good. God, I love when my voice cracks. It fucking really <laughs> brings me joy. What he's really good in is the movie that we talked about either on or off the podcast, I can't remember, a couple of weeks ago, which is the Tommy Lee Jones directed Three Burials of Melchiatus Estrada. Mm-hmm. He's mm. the star of that, and he's fucking incredible. Like, That's he's right, really yeah. good at that. I just realized in this movie called The Painted Bird, which I've had on my list for a little while, which looks kind of heavy, but I'll end up checking that out. Either way, anyway, neither here Yeah, nor actually, there. so speaking of The Three Burials, that reminds me of, um, what's it called? Um, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, which I think that movie's mm-hmm. title is like a reference to. That one's mm-hmm. by uh, Sam Peckinpah. And mm-hmm. this movie has like a Sam Peckinpah kind of feel to it um, in the way that it feels this like kind of like existentialist, um, ex- hyper violent. Um, it is and hyper the, violent. And the, like and and the way that he films the, the scenery as well, even though it's not as beautiful as a lot of Sam Peckinpah movies, just the, the focus on the scenery. Um, it kind that's of like that, a that's, thing. And that mean, is a Western thing. And that was actually one of the more like, I don't want to say disappointing things, but like kind of like. When they when they close in on a river and stuff, Ian, you were saying like it was beautifully photographed. But to me, when I see that stuff, I'm just kind of like, all right, let's go, like move it along. No, like, in this one, thought, I don't think. I mean, I think I, it was beautifully photographed in that, like, just you know, it's the last movie that Roger Deakins has done on film, mm-hmm. and like he, 
it feels like, I don't know, for me, I can tell the difference and I love the way that film looks. Mm -hmm. And like, I love that, like, so much of this movie is close-ups also, which kind of blew my mind because that's not a Western uh, style. Uh, Sergio Leone would beg to differ, I think. You're absolutely right about that. So they're taking that, but, like, not the true grit John Wayne era sort of movies, you know? And, like, there is so much just, like, while they're in this beautiful, or even if it's not incredibly beautiful because it's, like, the deserts of Oklahoma or whatever, but, like, it's, you know, they're in these vast landscapes and it's just, like, a close-up shot of Jeff Bridges' face and then it goes to a close-up shot of Haley Steinfeld's face. And I'm just, like, it's interesting that they're filming it that way, but also... I just thought that it looked beautiful. I guess what I mean when I say it's shot beautifully, I just mean like he's such a skilled cinematographer sure. that like he chooses shots that are just beautiful. Like, sure, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say like it, it, sometimes it fell a little bit into like we're doing a Western, we're getting these shots mm-hmm. and it felt a little kind of like um, those are the only times when they kind of get away from like the dialogue and get away from the characters uh, where I felt like it was a little rote or a little bit... Um, yeah. Just redundant to like a million other westerns I've seen, and I do right. love westerns. By the way, they're like a. Uh, I don't really. There's plenty of great westerns that I love. I don't have to list them all now, but uh, yeah, John Wayne's in a couple of them for sure. I think I don't know the ones that I love love. So like I was <clears throat> hearing all about how like the difference between, um, like Rio Bravo, like I mentioned earlier, was a movie that I grew up like watching so often because it was one of the few VHS movies we had and uh, we would just watch it all the time. And like high noon is one of my all time favorite Westerns. And it's like, Oh fuck you so hard. It's so Rio Bravo is great. High noon Rio sucks. Bravo is high great. I'm not saying boring. anything against Rio. No, Bravo. no, I'm just saying, I, noon... I think Rio Bravo is a great Western in the way that this is a great Western. Rio Bravo is like so much fun to watch, but it was interesting when I learned that like Rio Bravo was a direct reaction to high noon and like them mm. being like, no fuck you. And you're like trying to say something about American culture. Like we like it the way that it is. It was like, it made me like reframe it as like a MAGA movie, you know, you can but, think like, about it that way, but like, it. first of all, politics are like uh, the politics of that era are not the same as the politics of like today. Of course B, they were. What? They were? No, of course they not? weren't. Yeah, but... yeah. And then B high noon is just, is that really, I don't know. I don't, I don't enjoy that movie on any level. <laughs> oh, I love that movie so much. It's so good. I disagree. Talk about it more, but I don't want to talk about it right now. I'd rather <laughs> not talk you. about no, it. Kidding. <laughs> but uh, no, Rio Bravo is great. I mean, he made another great Western with John Wayne, which the director Howard Hawks, uh, which is uh, Red River. Red uh, River is great. I mean, obviously, The Searchers is like so many people's favorite movie. I think it's really great, also, although it's not. I don't hold it in as high regard as some of his more fun ones. I don't know. It's my favorite John Ford by far. And I, I just, I'm not like the biggest John Ford fan, but um, even that one, I think it's like two and a half hours long. <laughs> There's parts of it that I just am like mm-hmm. uh, less engaged with. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's parts of it that I think are like some of the coolest stuff I've ever seen. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, um, I love that opening shot. The searcher's opening shot is oh, so yeah. awesome. It pulls from inside Open. of the house and opens up to the giant vast plane. Then John Wayne rolls over the, the mound. So cool. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Some oh of my, my favorite cinematography ever. Agreed. Um, 
But I don't what know. Else? I feel like as a genre, I mean, we don't have to talk about this movie for that much longer because, you know, like we said, it's a popcorn Western. Like, it's got some interesting things in it, for sure. I do want to mention Carter Burwell giving one of my favorite, one of his scores. I think that, like, he has this ability to, like, you know, adapt to whatever movie he's doing and, like, you know, make it sound like a classic score. Like, it's yes. so good. I just loved it. Uh just props to him props to mary zofri's fucking costumes again they work with these guys they've kind of abandoned i feel like in the last few movies using the same actors but they really stuck with using the same you know behind the scenes crew like they'll bring in guys like you know from their acting troupe like obviously josh brolin they've worked with before jeff bridges they've worked with before i read that uh J.K. Simmons is the voice of the lawyer on the phone in this. Like, they'll do things like that. Um, but, you know, they used to just use the same actors in every movie. And they right. kind of walked away from that. But now it's just the behind-the-scenes crew. They've just found their crew and they fucking stick with it. And it's they're, they're all at the top of their game. Like, like you said, this is sort of like, you know, the... What's that? The post-history, like, after-history, like, Coen Brothers movie. They've kind of had yeah, their yeah. full arc where they've, like you know, made their ultimate movie like several times, I feel. And now they're just kind of like, what next? You know what I mean? They're doing more adaptations. They're doing more remakes. And, um, and yeah, they're just kind of like, I mean, you could call it like anti-experimenting. They're like, rather than trying something new, they're like, can we do a movie where we don't try anything and we just try to like make a right. movie like in a straightforward way? Um, oh, you know what's interesting about that though? Because I, I do think that like it's worth mentioning that this is by far, like by a huge margin, their most successful movie, like their most financially successful really? movie. Really? I had no oh, idea. By, I had no by idea. By an insane margin. Like this movie was made for $35 million and US gross was $120 million. Like not even Damn. worldwide. Like it's an insane success, by far their biggest. It was nominated for 10 mm. Oscars, although it didn't win any. It was like by far their biggest movie. When I was watching and it probably... uh, last night, I was thinking like, oh, sorry. No, it's okay. I was just saying uh, like, I... I thought it was like a, t I, I was wondering if it was like a family film. And I'm like, oh, is that why they were kind of pulling back? Is this like a family movie? Because it's like a teenage protagonist and things are just kind of like plodding along in this kind of like pleasant way. And then the dude like, Gets his fingers chopped, chopped off and yeah. like stabbed so <laughs> well, forcefully in the that, chest. Get, like the hanging scene right at the beginning is mm -hmm. pretty brutal. The hanging like, scene is pretty brutal, but I was whole... like, maybe you could get away with showing that in like a PG-13. But then when the guy gets his head blown away, like yeah. But you want to get shocked? This range. movie is PG-13. Oh, is it really? It really is. And that blew my mind. And How I watched that, it with He blows Greta. a hole in the guy's head. <laughs> and, well, the original and, and was, like, was rated G, so there you go, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but like, I know, more I know. understandably. I'm just but, like, you know, Greta's, like, going to be 11, and she's, like, watching more sort of PG-13 and even R-rated movies if mm. they are, you know, not going to fuck with her nightmares too much or kind of thing. But even she was, like, watching it, just being like, this is not PG-13. Well, the presence like, of blood is, is a that? huge determinant in the way they rate a movie. So there's actually, even though, the you know, Dennis Hopper's whatever, the other guy, uh, friggin' Domino Gleason's Gleason. character gets stabbed, you know, there's no, like, a lot of blood gushing everywhere like a usual Cohen movie. So I think that plays a role, even though it's kind of yeah, brutal. Yeah. Dude's fingers just laying there and he gets stabbed in the chest, but it's not like, <laughs> you know, the usual blood shed is not really there 
on screen. Uh, but even like when they come across the hung body as they're just going down the trail mm-hmm. and then she has to go up in the tree to cut it out and it's like <laughs> falls to the ground and fucking you see his like face and it's just like that was pretty brutal for a PG-13 movie. But that all was to say that like that definitely does contribute to how successful it was. And I do think that like you're right. Like this is the kind of thing where it's like it's anti-experimenting, like you said, where it's like up to this point, they're kind of like, well, can we make a, you know, Western and just have it be a Western kind of thing. But then their next movie, Inside Lewin Davis, they had been trying to make for 15 years. And it was only because True Grit was as successful as it was that they're just like, okay, now we can make our 1960s folk like music movie. You know, like that was like it like awarded them that. And I wonder how much of this was that was done because of that. Yeah. The name of the name of true grit, which is known, right. All these big movie stars. Um, well good for them. And honestly, but like you do leave kind of, you know, again, I think when you have this world and they've done this in their movies where you film a big, like open, expansive environment, you have these kind of forceful characters. And like, even though the Bible and God are referenced like constantly throughout the movie, you really get the end of it, get the the picture by the end of it. Like it's only by like force of will does anything happen. And, you know, you say like, you know, uh, Rooster Coburn, Cogburn's kind of like this, like, you know, heroic figure, but he's also, yeah, like he's, he's also really gross and, and like, yeah. and a Confederate and like, you know what I mean? Like he yeah. is able to do like something good, but the movie also kind of makes the point, I think, that, like, um, I don't know, like, there, it's not just that you're good or bad either, that it's just sort of like, you know, circumstances befall people and they kind of fall into these well, lines. Well, I think that's the idea mm. behind grit is that, like, maybe you're a piece of shit, but, like, if you've got that fucking true grit, then you'll, like, do this, do the right and thing. And here's another way this falls into their kind of, like, view on the world, because, again, like I was referring to, I think last week, their, their kind of appreciation of people like that, right? Like, all mm. the characters that, like, Maddie kind of looks up to and, and, like, and embodies herself are, like, the wife who would kill the Dybbuk in the opening story of mm-hmm. uh, A Serious Man, right? Just mm-hmm. people who are, like, I am, you know... Uh, secure in my like knowledge of god that i'm doing the right thing and i can you know when she's when he's just like oh yeah i'm gonna shoot this guy in the back uh when so they know we're serious and it kind of lays this whole plan out and she's like you have excellent poise sir you know what i mean like they're like they're on the same level uh even though she's like a 14 year old kid and uh, that's a great point especially with the beginning when the guy's going down the list of different potential marshals for her to contact right like he's in the Mm -hmm. middle and he's like this guy good guy blah 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 this guy not so good guy he's unsavory but he's you know gets gets a job done he's violent you're like oh wait that's a cohen guy and then he talks about the other guy of course she gravitates toward that guy and i think that's a really good point travis they have that type and you know uh, yeah like just like just that he's like so um that he doesn't question himself he he has no anxiety he's not like us uh millennials clinging to his avocado toast or whatever. <laughs> uh, he's like the opposite. He's like a, a prototypical boomer. <laughs> well said. I don't know. Let's just write it. I don't know. I think we can, I think we can move on from this movie. And I do think that it was great. Like I, I don't want to sound like I don't fucking, think this is a great movie. Cause I do. I just, uh, I think we've talked all about it that we needed to. Cause it's not like a movie that like, warranted that much given that we talked about it maybe it's a popcorn movie in a lot of ways i think they still have something to say in the like i said at the beginning like it made sense that they would tackle the western like it was almost inevitable and it seems like they're getting ready to do it and then this movie happens and you're like 
I don't feel like they quite did it. And then in a couple mm. movies, they absolutely yes, do it. Exactly do what I was about to say. That's exactly Brother what I was going to say. Totally. Yeah. Exactly what I was going to say. You took a word yeah. right out of my mouth. I'm stoked for <laughs> <Sorry>. Buster Scruggs. <laughs> no, yeah, great. Exactly. I'm glad someone said it. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm excited to talk about that one more like in relation to their like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, at some point. Yeah. I do want to talk about like what is next for them because they do have a long career. Uh, but we'll get to that maybe in the last episode. I don't know. I'll just start reading. Um, Fargo, No Country for Old Men, The Big Lebowski, Miller's Crossing, <laughs> Raising Arizona. Then I've switched these up a little bit. I don't know. The Man Who Wasn't There I really has been sticking with me a lot, and I really fucking love it. So that's next after Raising Arizona. Cool. And then Blood Simple. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, True Grit, Barton Fink, Headsucker, Intolerable Cruelty, and The Lady Killers. Nice. This one, so we. this is the 15th movie we're covering, uh, and they're 15th. This one is smack Damn. dab in the middle, right in the middle of my <laughs> list. There's an equal number both before and after it. It's number eight in mine. Uh, no Country for Old Men, still number one. It's, again, damn near a tie with Fargo. At any given day, I could flip a coin and have one of those be the number one movie. So Don't flip a coin. Interchangeable. No, I know. Oh, oh. <laughs> you, saw, you see what I did there? You see what I did there? Uh, <laughs> the Big Lebowski, number three. Blood Simple, Man Who Wasn't There. Raising Arizona has jumped up to number six. It was lower than that, and it keeps kind of coming up. I keep thinking about it more and more uh especially since you guys you know we keep talking about it a serious man true great right in the middle then oh brother uh barton fink miller's crossing and then you know hud sucker proxy burn after reading intolerable cruelty lady killers boom okay. what you got travis well where did i put serious man last time oh okay i see it um okay number one Oh boy, I'm going raising Arizona today. I'm feeling I'm in a raising Arizona kind of mood. What? Number number two, Fargo. Three, No Country for Old Men. Four, Big Lebowski. Five, The Man Who Wasn't There. Six, Burn After Reading. Seven, really close. Let's go True Grit. Eight, blo- eight Blood Simple. Uh, and then we're gonna do a four way tie between Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Hudsucker Proxy, Serious Man. Um, then you got, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And then Tied for Last, we'll do Intolerable, uh, Cruelty and Lady Killers. Right on. It's funny, that that's our, sense. like, universally, you know, well, yeah. loathed I mean, hair movies I, at the bottom of every really single list. I'm curious to see how this next movie goes over, because I, you know, I've talked about how much I love it. I know that, like, for me personally, it was not as high on my list until like the third or fourth time I saw it. And so if you guys are going into it with your first or second views, I know it's like got an uphill battle for it, you know, but uh, I'm really interested to talk about it because I think it's a super interesting movie. I I love the lead actor. I love cats. And Mm -hmm. uh, the only, and I love the costumes from what I've seen. The only thing that's Mm -hmm. kind of like making me worried about it is like um, some of the shots that I've seen of the movie, have this kind of like digital murk to them, like yeah, this yeah. like fuzzy yeah, cloudiness, out. and like mm-hmm. it's so um, ugly. <laughs> like I'm a little concerned, but we'll. I'll. I'm going in with an open mind. Yeah, I think it hits a lot of what the Coen Brothers do best, but it's like a straightforward drama. Like there's no part of it. I mean, it's it's funny for sure, but there's no part of it that's like crime or you know. Right. Anything yeah, like that. interesting. So, 
Um, anyway. Looking forward Good to talk, it. Guys. Yeah, great talk, kind of. I think I feel like kind we're all, yeah. little, <laughs> we're all a little tired and we're like a little uninspired well, by like, talking about You know, movie. we start this <laughs> podcast because like we love talking about movies and we watched this movie. I think all of us were like, that's not a movie that you watch and you're like, I gotta talk about that no, movie. Totally. Like, it's you just gotta like, you just gotta, like put your popcorn it. down and applaud. Yeah, yeah then, exactly. Then I go on about like my if, day. Exactly. Yeah, like, I feel like, yeah, if we could have all just watched it and applauded together, we would have all walked away like much happier with this movie. Yeah. But I am, I am happy with it. I think no, it's really good. I loved it in theaters, but like I barely remembered it when I rewatched mm-hmm. it. You know, I remembered mm-hmm. some certain parts and then, yeah. So I think that's kind of how you, how you take it, how the body takes it. Yeah. All right, fellas. See you next Until time. we meet again. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Bye. See ya. Get along, little doggies. The sun is sinking in the west. The cattle go down to the stream. The red wing settles in her nest. It's time for a cowboy to dream. Purple in the canyon, that's where I long to be with my three good companions, just my rifle, pony, and me gonna hang my sombrero. On the limb of a tree coming home, sweetheart darling, just my rifle pony and me. Whippoorwill in the willow sings a sweet melody. Amarillo, Amarillo, just my rifle, pony, and me. No more cow, no more cow to be roping, to be roping. No more stray, no more stray. Will I see round the bend, round the bend? She'll be waiting, she'll be waiting for my rifle. Play something I can sing with you.